So as we talked about last week, the entire first half of Mark's gospel has really been building towards a confession. The confession is of Peter as the leader of the apostles, as their representative, as he came to the realization that Jesus is the Christ. Up to this point in the narrative, only the demons have made such a public declaration. You remember at the synagogue in Capernaum as Jesus taught, the man with the unclean spirit, he cried out, Mark 1, 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then in the country of the Gerasenes, as he and his disciples crossed the sea, they got off the boat, and immediately there was a man there filled with many demons, wild, naked, uncontrollable. He too fell down at Jesus' feet and exclaimed, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. Very clearly the word of James is true, that even the demons know, and they shudder. That the demons the fallen angels and their prince, Satan himself. They know who Jesus is better than most of us, better than any of us. They know. And in that knowing, they have enough sense to be terrified. They know that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. They know that he has come to destroy the works of the devil. And they know the promise stretching all the way back to Genesis 3. That from woman would come a man that would crush the head of the serpent. And from that moment forward, they have been doing everything that they could. The enemy working first to prevent that child from coming. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And then once the child was here, trying to do all that he could to destroy the child, sending, placing within Herod the desire to kill all the, all the children there in the region. Then once they failed in that, doing all that they could to keep him from the cross, Knowing that the cross spelled the end. Knowing that as each spike was driven into our Savior's flesh, it actually served as a nail in their eternal coffin. They knew that there, the works of the devil would be destroyed. But church, you need to know that the theology of the demons, it is quite orthodox. It's not that they have a lack of knowledge. It's that in that knowledge, they rage instead of worship. Finding no desire or no place for repentance. God did not spare them when they sinned. So the angels knew. They knew who Jesus was. It was the people who were confused. It was the people who were darkened in their hearts. Futile in their thinking. I read to you for the third straight week. The passage from Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their hearts. The Pharisees saw Jesus, and they believed him to be a blasphemer. In fact, they accused him of being possessed by Beelzebul. The crowds, they saw Jesus, and they saw nothing more than a kind-hearted miracle worker. And then the half-hearted followers, they saw Jesus, and they saw a political revolutionary. They saw an earthly king that had come to lead them, to make certain that there was no worldly suffering for them. It was only the few the small remnant, you might say, just those faithful few followers that truly recognized, whose hearts were not hardened like the past so that they could not receive the gospel at all. Their hearts were not like the rocky and the shallow soil where when the trials of this world would come along, it would just burn away anything that was there. Not like those with thorns all around them where the good things of this world was choking out the message. It was for only the few, those who had been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. It was only the few 
they would come to a true understanding of who Jesus is. And from that point, they would move forward in growing in their understanding. Credo, ut, intelligum was the word we used last week, the phrase. They come to that point of belief, and then their understanding, then their knowledge would grow. Jesus seems to have been insinuating this when he called him aside after the preaching of the parables. Mark 4.11, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so what we see throughout this entire first section of Mark's gospel is we see how badly these men need understanding. We see how confused they are, temporarily hardened in their hearts, unable to reckon with the truth of who God is, asking questions like, what kind of man is this that the wind and the waves would obey his voice? Now as we come to the second section of Mark's gospel, this morning's text, all the way through chapter, up to chapter 11 in the triumphal entry, what we see is them growing in this insight. Now it's not going to be perfect. Their insight, their understanding will not be perfect either within Mark's gospel or within their lifetime. And yet we see the pattern. We see the growth. We see the movement. As Jesus Christ continues to walk with them and to work within them, it's a perfect picture of discipleship. As he takes them from the point of their confession all the way through to the day of their death, causing them to see more clearly, to understand more rightly, to fully comprehend who he is and what he came to do. So it should be no, no surprise to us then that we see this second section of Mark's gospel. We see it bookended by two stories wherein Jesus heals blind men. Today, it will be an unnamed man. At the end of chapter 10, it's going to be blind Bartimaeus. I believe that what God is doing here is he's showing a picture of the spiritual sight that men need. He's showing us a picture of how only he can grant us that sight. Now, at first glance, this morning's text, the miracle that we read here, it might seem a little bit redundant because we have studied so many miracles. It might seem a bit redundant to you. You might think, I've already heard this. What's the purpose here? Is this just like all the rest? But I don't believe so. I believe that while every single miracle Jesus, Jesus performed, yes, it affirmed who he was, and yes, it confirmed his gospel, and yes, it made clear that the, gospel of, uh, that the kingdom of God was, in fact, at hand. I believe that God had perfectly placed this healing right here in Mark's gospel to set the stage for all that follows. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence to the reading of God's word. We return to Mark's gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes, spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not enter even to the village. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? And Father God, we pray that feeling the weight of that, Father, we confess that it is one thing to look at a picture of a waterfall. It's an entire different thing to stand next to that waterfall. It would be an entirely different thing to recognize that that waterfall has every right to destroy us. Father, may we never forget who we do business with, what we deserve at your hands. And then from that place, when we see your mercy, and not only sparing us, 
but calling us to you as sons and daughters. May from there spring forth real, unshakable joy. Father, we pray that that would drive our worship today. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida. So ever since Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees over the traditions of men, those things which they had allowed to encroach upon the authority of God's word, ever since that point, we have seen Jesus pulling more frequently and further out of the region of Galilee. Now, if this Bethsaida in this morning's story, if it is in fact this town that is just on the eastern side of where the Jordan River enters into the Sea of Galilee, if this is where this miracle took place, then this is actually within the region called Galilee, but this would be the last work that he would perform there. Now, this town, they had been witness to many miracles, not the least of which being the feeding of the 5,000. And yet for the vast majority of the people there, the works that they had seen would bring no positive effect to their life whatsoever. In fact, it would only cause to increase their judgment. In the end, it would cause to bring upon them a more harsh, harsh punishment. Matthew's gospel talks about this. After Jesus called the 12 to himself, we read this in Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The lands of Tyre and Sidon, certainly Sodom, we were well aware of the depravity that was found there, the wickedness, the outward evil that we saw in these lands. And yet what he is saying is that the day of judgment will be more bearable for you than for these Galilean towns. Their sin may be hidden. Their sin may be confined to their heart. But they have seen so much. They have seen so many miracles. They had seen so much teaching. They had heard from Jesus so many times, and as a result, they only grew harder. Had Jesus spent the time in these Gentile lands that he had spent with these Jewish people, perhaps he would have, God would have used that to call more of them to, to faith, much like Jonah with the town of Nineveh. But yet instead, they just continued to grow harder. Even Capernaum, the place that served as Jesus' hometown for most of his Galilean ministry, they would be brought down to Hades because all that they had been exposed to only caused to bring further hardening in their heart. They refused to repent. Beware, dear friends. Every single week you come into this place and you hear the word of God. You see the working of the Spirit amongst these people. If you would continue to sit there in unrepentance, all you're doing is heaping up punishment upon yourself. Matthew Henry, the 17th century Englishman, he says this, the stronger inducements we have to repent, the more heinous is the unrepentance and the more severe will the reckoning be. To whom much is given, much will be demanded. You cannot plead, plead ignorance. You cannot plead that you did not hear the gospel. And you cannot plead that you did not see the working of that gospel in the lives of men and women. We don't play around. They came to Bethsaida, and so people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So you've seen this intercessory work all throughout Mark's gospel. It's people that 
driven by love and compassion for their loved ones, knowing that only Jesus could meet the need that they had, that they would work, oftentimes carrying their friends long distances at times, carrying their friends to Jesus, pleading, begging, Jesus, would you heal them? Jesus, would you give them sight? I beg you, do what only you can do. I've prayed that prayer a lot. Oh, Lord, if I could do it, I would give them sight. Father God, if I could bring them to life, I promise you that I would do it. I would run through fire. I would crawl across glass. There was nothing that I wouldn't do to heal my brother, to call them to life, to give them sight. But only you can do it, God, and so I am here pleading with you to do it. Beloved, don't quit pleading. And don't quit bringing your friends to Jesus. Trusting that that's the only place that life will be found. So we see this intercession. Verse 23, and he took the blind man and by the hand and he led him out of the village. This was necessary. Practically, it was necessary. Blind men need to be led around. We've talked in weeks past about the dangers of blind men leading blind men. It leads to destruction. It leads to great danger. And yet, practically, Jesus needed to lead this man. But we also see another sign of compassion here. Because for the religious leaders... They may have had as much of a refusal to lay hands on or to touch this man as even someone like a leper. Because for them, blindness was a sign of a curse. It was a sign of God's disapproval. It was a sign of sin in their life. We read about this in John's Gospel, John 9, 1 through 2, where there was a blind man and they wondered. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus made clear, this man is born blind as a result of sin. It's a result of sinful men and women living in a sinful, fallen world. But it is not specific sin on the part of this man, on the part of his parents that have brought him to this place. So that when you see this blindness, when you see this sickness, it ought to cause you to hate sin. It ought to cause you to be reminded of the consequences of sin. But you also need to look with great anticipation. This man is born blind that the glory, that the works of God might be displayed. That God uses the sickness. He uses the blindness for the sake of his own glory. And so Jesus takes the man by the hand, and he leads him out of town. And we're not told why he leads him away. Probably so that he can be healed in peace, away from the prying eyes, the looky-loos that were there, that were just interested in seeing another sign. But also because of the hardness of their hearts. You remember that he told the Pharisees, you're not going to see another sign. We've already talked about the hardness, the blindness of the people in Bethsaida. So he takes them away. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him. It sounds a bit like the healing of the deaf man up in the north Gentile country, doesn't it? There where Jesus put his fingers in his ears, then spitting, he touched his tongue, and immediately the man was able to praise God for what he had done, also taking that man away from the crowd. It's very similar. We don't know why the spitting. We wondered back then if perhaps it was because in that part of the world, in that day, saliva was associated with healing, and this was a sign, a signal, a picture to this man of what it was that was about to happen. But it's interesting that those two miracles, they only are found in Mark's gospel. You won't find them in Matthew or in Luke. But as was Jesus' custom in many healings, he lays his hands on this man. Now, in the Old Testament, we see people laying hands on people. We see it as an act of consecration, setting aside an animal, perhaps. that It could be offered up as, a, as an offer, offering, a sacrifice to the God. We see it as a show of ordination for priests. Again, setting them aside, dedicating their lives to the service of the Lord. We see it as a show of blessing like Jacob with his sons. But very rarely, I only found one instance this week, there may be others, but very rarely in the Old Testament do we see the laying on of hands associated with healing. But with Jesus, it did. It was a symbol of his, of his might, of his power, of his willingness to restore people, showing that this wasn't just some mystical force. This wasn't magic. The power was found in God and that God was here. 
that he could have healed from a distance, but he was connected. He was there. He was touching people right where they needed the healing. And we see this in Jesus, touching the man on his eyes. And he asks him, do you see anything? Now, if this miracle seemed familiar to you, at this point it goes way off the rails. We've never seen this. Jesus asking a man after he's laid his hands on him to heal him, how'd I do? Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that he could in one touch, in one instance, with one, er, one word, completely heal this man. Why did he ask the question? Then? I have to imagine it's for our sake and the sake, of those, the sake of those disciples that were there on that day so they could know what it was that Jesus was doing. So Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So we don't know how this man knew what trees look like. Maybe he wasn't born blind. Maybe he was and he had just felt a tree before and he knew that a tree was a, was a fairly big upright thing that was kind of tall. We don't know for sure, but clearly his sight was not completely restored at this moment. He said, I see the man. I see the people. These were probably the disciples walking around. He said, I see them, but they look like trees walking. Now, I'm not a Greek expert. I'm taking Greek this semester. I stink at it. Cary Camp has offered a thousand times to tutor me in it. And I just hadn't even found the time yet. Man, I'm bad. There's lots of helps out there for Greek, by the way. And even with the helps, I'm the worst. But as I play with this, it doesn't seem like the men are saying, I mean, it seems like they're saying, I see men walking, but they kind of look like trees. I don't think he's saying, I see the men, and they look like walking trees. I, don't, I think there's a difference there, and I don't think that what he thinks he sees is a bunch of trees running around, and he's like, wow, nobody told me trees run. I think what's happening is he's seeing men, and it's just not clear. Saying as best I can tell, it looks like what I think a tree looks like. Again, I don't know that it matters, but it's been in my head all week. So we get to verse 25. Then Jesus lays his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So immediately, at this moment, as he lays his hands, perfect sight, 2020 sight, or whatever's better than 2020 sight. As if he had never been blind, he sees clearly. He sees perfectly. And then Jesus, as was his pattern, he tells him, don't even go to your own town. Clearly the man was not from Bethsaida. He's telling him, don't even go to that town. You need to go all the way to your hometown. You need to go all the way home. Because, again, I'm not looking for attention. I'm not looking to grow this crowd. As a matter of fact, the crowd's going to shrink as my disciples and I head south towards Jerusalem. But why the two stages? Why did he lay hands on the man the, the second time? I've made a great deal throughout Mark's gospel, the fact that Jesus could heal with just one word, just one touch, completely and totally. A woman with a fever, all he has to do is say a word, lay a hand on her, and immediately she's up as if the fever was never there, completely strengthened. Lame men with just a touch or with just a word, as if their legs had never been lame, they're up leaping and running and rejoicing. Men with a tongue that is tied with just a touch from Jesus Christ immediately is loosed and singing praises to God. Was Jesus losing his touch? Was his power fading as he moved towards the cross? Was this some kind of super illness that was outside the reach of God? Surely it was intentional. Surely this wasn't about the power of the illness or the lack of the power of Jesus Christ. Surely it was intentional. It seems clear to me based on the placement of this miracle here. You see, it came, remember, right after the warning of Jesus to his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And then immediately he was frustrated with his disciples because they failed to understand what it was that he was talking about. And then right after this, we're going to hear the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And then from that point to the cross, we see as he brings him into a clear understanding, clear sight of who he is, an increased focus 
on teaching these men that are with him. Seems clear to me, seems clear to a whole lot of commentators that what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture for his disciples then and his disciples today. He's painting a picture of the progressive nature of spiritual sight. Now don't get it twisted. That work of regeneration, that new birth, that spiritual life which we've talked about, that gracious and miraculous act by which God calls men to life, gives them eyes to see and ears to hear, that is an instantaneous, singular event. Jesus did not tell Nicodemus, you will never see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, and then again, and then probably again in two days, and then again after that. It is a singular and an instantaneous event in a moment, just like physical birth. You're either born again or you're not. And once you're born again, though you may die physically, you shall live forever. This is a thing that comes in an instant and not a thing that can be lost. And as we have discovered, that very first act of this spiritual life, freely yet guaranteed, like a newborn baby crying out, immediately the first thing we do, the first thing we see with these newly given spiritual eyes is we see Jesus Christ and he is glorious. Irresistible. We delight in him like never before and we are drawn to him. We desire him. We may have heard all the facts about him. We may know all the stories about him. We may be able to give all the Sunday school answers, but then in that moment for the first time we truly see him and we love him. And we turn and we repent and we believe instantaneously in that moment once and forever. Now do we need to continue to live out this repentance? Do we need to continue to turn each day to deny ourselves, to denounce our sin? Absolutely. Do we need to affirm our faith and continue to walk in trust? Absolutely. But this new birth is once and for all, and yet our sight is not yet what it will be. This newly given sight, Jesus must continue to touch us. You'll notice that the man didn't do anything to improve his own sight. Even after Jesus gave him the sight, he didn't do anything to improve his own sight. It was dependent upon the touch of Jesus Christ. Truthfully, the man was probably overwhelmed by what Jesus had already done. If he had, in fact, been born blind, he may not have known that any better sight was available to anybody. He may have believed in that moment, I see as good as all the rest of the disciples. Everybody just sees walking trees. That's just the way life works. He may not have even known, had Jesus not been there and asked the question and laid hands on him, he may not have even known that there was something greater out there for him. And yet to show the disciples their need for his continued touch, for a deeper understanding, for clearer sight, he touched the man again. He healed him in stages, showing that it will take time. We cannot expect to understand all the things of God in a moment or even in this lifetime, that even as we come to faith, even as we come to repentance and we see Jesus Christ as glorious and we desire him more than anything else, we're not going to have it all figured out. We're not going to wrap, wrap a nice tidy bow around it. It's going to be continually coming back to him. And that's what we see as the second section of Mark plays out. As soon as Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, he speaks to him very plainly about his death and his resurrection. He wants to make certain that they understand what it means for the Messiah to come. And he wants to make certain that they understand what it is that awaits those that would follow after him. They'd already come to believe in him as the Christ. And yet they didn't fully understand what it meant for him to be the Christ or what awaited those that followed him. Now they had left everything to follow Jesus. They left behind the religious establishment. There was no going back. They left everything to follow Jesus. And yet this picture would become clear as they continue to walk with him and to hear his voice and to receive his touch. So we'll see this in three repeating cycles as we read through this section of Mark's gospel. What we'll see is there's going to be a change in location as they move from north to south going back towards Jerusalem. 
Then we're going to see Jesus preach and speak very clearly about his death and resurrection. Then we will see the disciples are confused. They don't understand. Then we will see Jesus lovingly correct them, bring them to clear sight. Again, it's not going to be perfected within this section of Mark. It's not going to be perfected even within their lifetime. And then the cycle, cycle repeats over and over three times. We're going to see this as we read through this section of Mark's gospel. In church, I see the same pattern in my own life. I see this very same pattern. That one day Jesus meant nothing to me. I mean, I, I grew up in church, and so I had this general warm affection for him that I probably would have called love. But Jesus, our, Jesus himself said that if you love me, you obey my commandments. I didn't see that. Frankly, I didn't see any evidence that I was his. I believed intellectually that he was the only begotten son of God. I knew intellectually that he was the only way of salvation. I knew intellectually that I had to believe and repent in order for him to be my savior, in order for me to be saved. But there was absolutely zero evidence that I was his. There was absolutely zero evidence that I was truly trusting in him. There was absolutely zero evidence that that truth which I knew intellectually had affected my heart in any way. Could I get emotional during a worship service? Sure. Could I cry out to him in times of suffering? Absolutely. But there was absolutely no reason for my hope and no basis for my assurance. No evidence of salvation whatsoever in my life until one day there was. And I don't know how. I didn't see it coming. I don't know the workings of the Holy Spirit as he brought me to that place. I just know that one day, in an instance, Jesus was no longer just a historical guy that I was supposed to believe in. That he was there and that he was real. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ was no longer just a thing telling me, go and do better. Why aren't you better? Why aren't you trying harder? All of a sudden, it was an invitation from a friend. It was an offer that no one else could extend to me. He was calling me. He was there. He was alive. I saw him. I heard his voice. And I knew I wanted him more than anything else. And I hadn't felt that way before. It wasn't that he had changed. It was that I had changed. And it wasn't that I had changed myself. He brought me to that place of seeing, of loving him. All of a sudden, obedience and love and true worship. Those things were just there. I hadn't manufactured them. I hadn't just buckled down. I didn't wake up and say, you know what? My parents have been really good to me this week. I think today's the day I truly worship the living God. It was the work of God in my life. Worship wasn't just a thing on the end of the calendar. It wasn't just a thing I had to go do on Sunday. It was my life. It oozed out of me. But the world was still there. And so was temptation. And so was sin. And my mind was always lagging behind. And just about the time I thought I had him figured out, I realized how badly I'd missed the mark. But the deeper I went, the more I realized there was. The more he touched me and the more clearly I saw, the more I realized I don't yet see it all. I knew there was more, deeper and higher and further and greater. With each new touch, as my sight began to improve, I realized just how little I actually saw, and I craved more, continuing to come back to him, knowing that I'm missing the mark, and only you can bring me to that place, because he's so patient, and he's so tender, and he's so kind, and he's so loving, because I'm his, and he's the one that brought me to faith, and so he doesn't leave me in my hardened state. He doesn't turn his back and walk away. He keeps coming. He keeps speaking, opening my eyes. As I come to his word, as I gather together with the saints, as I worship him, I feel his touch as he brings me to this place 
this place of loving correction, constantly improving my sight. Again, it's not going to be perfect in this life. I don't know how many times he's asked me the same questions he asked the disciples. Do you still not understand? Do you still not see? But this isn't anger, it's compassion. Like asking this man, what do you see? In church, I believe this is the picture that we see here. The picture he was painting for his disciples, the picture he's painting for us in this two-stage healing. And that's my encouragement for you this morning. If God has granted you the gift of sight, if he has brought you to spiritual life, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, and called on him as Lord, if you see yourself following him, then don't get discouraged by the lack of understanding. Don't get discouraged by the lack of sight. You just keep coming. You need to remember that the very first temptation in the Garden of Evil, uh, Garden of Evil, in the Garden of Eden, the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden, what was it about? It was about wisdom. The enemy wants to tempt you to abandon trust and obedience for the sake of pure wisdom. To go chasing after knowledge and wisdom and turning your back in distrust. Anger and frustration to throw your hands up and give away. To give up. To walk away. But Jesus is urging you to trust him. Trust in me alone. I'm the one that's called you to life. I'm the one that gave you the sight. And I'm the only one that can improve your sight. I'm the only one that can improve your understanding. Quit going everywhere else. Do you think I've brought you to this place? I've told you I'm the author and perfecter of your faith. You come back to me. I'm the source of it all. You continue to come back to me, and yes, as I pleaded with you last week, you do the work. You do the wrestling. You continue to come to God's word. You continue to stand on these solid, deep doctrines, trusting in them even when you don't fully understand them. You continue to do the work, knowing that it's by that work that he is touching, he is working, he is moving, he is bringing you to clear sight. You come to him with obedient and expectant faith, trusting that he'll do for you what he's done for others, trusting he'll do for you what he did for this blind man, improving your understanding and your faith over time. And beloved, I believe it's when we come to that point where we crave his touch more than we crave head knowledge. When we crave his touch more than being able to woo men with this eloquent speech, that it's then that we really begin to see. It's then that we really begin to understand. We're not training for jeopardy here. This isn't trivial pursuit. This is the walking and the teaching and the loving hand of our Savior. And so I'll finish with this. I, I, there's a prayer. What time, we, what time we gotta be done? Quarter till, I'm good. So, so there's, a, there's a prayer of, of thanksgiving that the Apostle Paul offers up to the church at Ephesus. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture, I believe, of this call, of the way that we ought to pray for each other and the desire that we ought to have for ourselves. And so I don't often read out of the New Living Translation, but I, I'm gonna do that today because I think it speaks more plainly to us. So I'll read out of Ephesians 1. 15 all the way down through 23. <clears throat> For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease in giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I just read that from the ESV. So I'm going to read to the NLT now like I meant to. Yeah, God's word never comes back void. Y'all get something out of that. And I don't mess with the NLT much. It's, it's good, right? It's a, it's a, it's a thought-for-thought translation, not word-for-word, but I think you'll get the thoughts better. I was halfway through, but I didn't want to break my stride. So here we go. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. That's a prayer. Beloved, I would remind you that the great doxologies, the great prayers, the great worship, the great things that we see flooding out of Scripture always come in the middle of this deep theology. You will see men like the Apostle Paul wrestling, just wrestling all throughout the book of Romans, wrestling with just who God is and how our salvation comes and what his plan is. And out of the midst of that, just worship just springs forth. That's worship. That's joy. That's the tone I pray that we strike in this place, that we're a people that hear the word of our God. We hear the promises of our God, knowing what we deserve and yet what he offers, and that that drives us to worship. That drives us to instantaneous prayers like this, that we pray for each other like this, that we come into this place, that we build each other up in ways like this, knowing that he will be glorified and we will find true joy. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us blind. Yet, Father, we also thank you that you have not merely given us a touch of sight and then allowed us to try and figure it out on our own. You've not called us to wrestle on our own and, and try to figure out, Father, how we, would, how we would see you more clearly. We know we do not have it in ourselves. We know that it is only by continually coming to that very same place in which our salvation is found, Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we know that from that should spring forth true and spiritual worship. That those that are yours cannot help but be moved in our affections, stirred in our heart, stirred in our spirit. Father, we come into this place and we recognize the gravity of what it is that we do. And yet, Father, we know that there is true joy. There's true excitement. There's true gladness which comes from there. So, Father, we give ourselves wholly and completely to you, celebrating the mercies that you've extended us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified now, that you would be pleased by the truth that we sing back to you, an expression, I pray, Father, of the hearts and the spirits in this room. 
For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.